Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In our first three episodes, we'll be speaking with three historians about the Korean War, which began 70 years ago this month. Neither Pete nor I are experts on this topic, but by speaking with experts and examining their sources and methods, we'll explore the most recent research being done in the field while providing the context, significance, and current debate on events. Today we're going to be speaking with Charles Krauss, who's the Deputy Director of the History and Public Policy Program here at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Charles heads the program's efforts on the history of China's foreign relations, and we're delighted to have him and have the opportunity to speak with him today about China's role in the Korean War. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Thanks for having me. I'm going to jump right into the questions, if that's all right with you. So because much of your research has been on modern Chinese history, we'd like to begin with what was happening domestically in China at the time. Can you tell us what impact China's civil war had on the lead-up and outbreak of the Korean War? Uh, Sure. So... China uh, was in the midst of a civil war uh, that began shortly after the end of World War II, fought between the the Chinese Communist Party and the Nationalist Party. Um, And this had, the the Chinese Civil War had an effect on what was going on in Korea and specifically with North Korea in a couple of different ways. Um, At sort of a general level, the fact that the Communist Party of China was fighting uh, against its rivals who were perceived as being, uh, you know, close to the Americans or capitalists, um, certainly had an impact and an influence on North Korean leaders who, as we know, wanted to do something similar in regards to their rivals in South Korea. Uh, so for North Korean leader Kim Il-sung, looking next door uh, and seeing that Mao Zedong and the Communist Party were fighting this revolutionary war, Um, And at a certain point uh, in 1948, 1949, we're clearly on the path to victory. Uh, That must have inspired Kim Il-sung to want to do the same thing in his own country. Um, But then there was also sort of at a more practical level, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party was busy fighting its own civil war did have, uh, did put limits on the extent of uh, the ties that they had with North Korea at that time. Um, So unlike the Soviet Union, uh, uh, the the Chinese Communist Party had somewhat limited ties to North Korea uh, up to 1949. Uh, You know, the Communist Party didn't have an ambassador in in Pyongyang or anything like that. Uh, The North Koreans didn't have anyone permanently stationed, uh, you know, in Beijing to sort of liaise with the Communist Party. Um, So it does mean there there were some limits on the connectivity between the two sides um, during this period. 
Great. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the themes uh, you've brought up previously in your work is how much did Mao know in the lead up to the Korean War? Uh, could you explain why this is such an important question and what you've discovered in your research? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the what did Mao know uh, about Kim Il-sung's war plans and, and Kim Il-sung's desires to reunify the Korean peninsula under his control is important for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it gets us to the question of, you know, why did the Korean War begin and sort of what was the, the you know, the international context there, who, who initiated the war uh, and, and, and why. So understanding Kim Il-sung's relationships with China and with the Soviet Union can help us figure out why, uh, you know, why Kim Il-sung eventually did launch the war. Um, another, you know, related reason why it's an important question is this gets us uh, to sort of what happens after the war begins and subsequent developments in China's relations with North Korea and the Soviet Union. Um, obviously, if Mao didn't know that Kim Il-sung was about to launch a war uh, and the war eventually drew in China, uh, caused countless Chinese lives, that would have a different impact on China's relations with North Korea as well as the Soviet Union than if you know, Mao was fully aware of what Kim was planning. Um, based on the evidence that, that we have, Mao was definitely aware of Kim Il-sung's desires uh, to launch a war. As early as the spring of 1949, Kim Il-sung uh, himself didn't go to China, but he did send a representative to China to talk with Mao, as well as other key members of the Communist Party. Um, and, and during these meetings, which, um, by the way, we really only know about because of the, the Soviet archives, we don't, there's no real evidence of these meetings taking place in Chinese or North Korean sources. Um, but based on the, the Soviet archives, we know that Kim Il-sung sent someone to China to talk with Mao. Um, and Kim Il-sung's representative basically put it out there that Kim Il-sung also desired to have a war of liberation against South Korea and reunify the peninsula uh, under his command. Um, and how did Mao respond at this particular time? Well, if you, if you look at the documents, you get two different impressions, and that's because of who was writing uh, the documents. On, uh, for one source, which was written by the Soviet ambassador to North Korea, so it must have been composed after Kim Il-sung's representative gets back to North Korea and debriefs the Soviet ambassador. Uh, you get the impression that Mao was fully supportive of Kim Il-sung's war plans. Um, but if you read another source, which was written by the Soviet representative in China, uh, which must have been based off of Mao's debriefings or someone else in the Communist Party leadership's debriefings with this individual, uh, you get a different impression, which is, Mao said, now is not the right time for war. China is still in the midst of its own civil war. That means we're not going to be able to support you, uh, if, you need our, if you need our help. Um, and then there's, there's other pieces of evidence as time goes on that Mao is aware of and not fully comfortable with Kim Il-sung's war plans. Um, later in the year, again, uh, thanks to the Soviet archives, we know that Mao wrote to Stalin to say, He's gathered intelligence, uh, or he's, he's learned through intelligence uh, that Kim Il-sung wanted to uh, launch uh, an invasion of South Korea, that he had sent partisans to South Korea, uh, and Mao was upset because, one, this was the exact opposite of what he had told him uh, earlier that year, 
But two, he believed that Kim Il-sung had made some strategic errors that now put him at a disadvantage. Uh, and, and these sorts of, um, you know, the other cables like this uh, exist uh, from 1949 and 1950 that show Mao was clearly aware uh, of Kim Il-sung's aspirations. Um, and then the, the real sort of turning point uh, is later in spring of 1950 when Kim Il-sung actually himself goes to China. Uh, he goes to China in May 1950 after having just been in the Soviet Union in April 1950. Uh, and we know that when Kim Il-sung went to the Soviet Union in April, uh, it's at that time that he actually gained Stalin's approval to launch uh, a war. He had been asking Stalin for several years, and every time uh, Stalin had, had basically dismissed the idea. But in April 1950, Stalin says, okay, but you need to go to China to consult with Mao. So Kim Il-sung goes to, to China. Uh, he consults with Mao. Uh, he tells him that he has gained approval from Stalin to launch a war, and he wants to know what Mao thinks. So on May 13th, uh, Mao uh, writes to Stalin to say, hey, Kim Il-sung says you've given the okay for a war. Uh, is that true? And uh, Stalin writes back the next day and says, it is true. Uh, the situation has changed to such an extent that a war on the Korean Peninsula is now uh, permissible. But uh, Stalin says, but only if you, Mao, approve of Kim's plans. Um, after that, the, the paper trail sort of dries up. Um, but because of what happened on June 25th, we know that Mao must have given his, his consent uh, to Kim Il-sung launching a war. Can you go into a little more detail about the Stalin-Mao relationship and how that played into the green light for Kim to move forward with the invasion? Well, I mean, to, to be completely honest, so prior to the start of the Korean War, there's just not a lot of evidence out there about sort of the interactions that Mao had with Kim Il-sung. Um, you know, like I, I said earlier, really the only sources we have about what was going on between the two countries at sort of that high level between the two top leaders comes from the Soviet archives. Um, you know, the, the Chinese uh, have never released any of the, the, the records of Mao's meetings with Kim Il-sung from prior to the Korean War even in sort of the official biographies that party historians in China, uh, many of whom have, you know, very privileged access to archives and sources, uh, they don't even mention that this meeting took place. So, you know, there's limits on what, what we can know about the relationship. Um, on the one hand, though, we do see some evidence of, you know, occasional uh, annoyance on Mao's part with, with Kim Il-sung. I referenced earlier, Mao sent a, docu uh, a report to, to Stalin, a cable to Stalin, where he said, you know, I'm upset that I, I learned that Kim Il-sung was trying to start this war in South Korea. That's not what I recommended they do. Uh, they're not listening to me. Um, so you, you do see sort of examples of, um, you could call it tension, uh, annoyance. But on the other hand, I don't. I think there's there is a, a flip side, which is um, Kim Il Sung wanted to replicate what Mao had done in China, which was, uh, you know, waging a civil war, uh, emerging victorious, and then being able to carry forward the communist revolution. And I think Mao must have appreciated that uh, this person, Kim Il Sung, wanted to replicate 
uh, you know, his successes. Um, so I, I, I don't think you should, that, that's not something you necessarily see uh, verbatim in the documents, but I do think that was a part of it um, because you do see that Kim Il-sung uh, was very pleased with the outcome of the civil war uh, in China and that he saw this as, you know, now that China has finished its war and won, now it's my turn. So you say most of the high-level materials we have come from the Soviet side, but what about the Chinese records? What types of sources are available there, and what can they tell us about the Chinese perspective of the war? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're talking about sort of the period of the Chinese Civil War, there there is there is evidence, um, archival evidence uh, of some interactions between regional Chinese officials. So not not Mao or anyone at that level, but sort of the provincial officials in Northeast China. Uh, you know, the, the part of China that borders North Korea, there is evidence of interactions between the, the two sides. Um, and it, 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 it's interesting and it does show, um, you know, connectivity between the Chinese Communist Party and, and the, you know, the emerging North Korean state. It also, there's evidence that uh, North Korea actually provided some level of assistance um, to the Chinese Communist forces fighting in the Civil War in Northeast China. Um, for example, by letting uh, Chinese Communist forces cross the border um, to evade detection or to retreat to safety uh, against the, the national, Chinese Nationalist Army. Um, so there, are, there is Chinese sources on that sort of, at that level. At sort of the, the higher level of, you know, once the, the new Chinese, you know, People's Republic of China is founded, in October 1949, in um, its interactions with North Korea at that point, on the one hand, you sort of see it becoming a more normal relationship. I mean, there's a lot of Chinese sources that, you know, China sent such and such delegation to participate in a conference in North Korea, or North Korea asked to buy, uh, you know, coal from China. Um, actually, one of the really important things that there is some Chinese evidence on which does factor into to the origins of the Korean War is that uh, China, um, you know, it's a big country. There's a lot of different ethnic groups in China, uh, including a large, uh, fairly large Korean minority group. And during the Chinese Civil War, um, there was uh, several ethnically Korean um, contingents in the Chinese Communist Army. And uh, Mao Zedong, uh, in 1949, volunteers that these soldiers, if they want, they could go to North Korea and they could join the Korean People's Army. So this was sort of a way, um, although at that point Mao didn't consent to a war, uh, he did find ways to support North Korea and support its armed forces. Um, so Mao made that offer in 1949, but it doesn't actually happen until early 1950. Um, after the founding of the People's Republic of China, that these troops are transferred from China, from the People's Liberation Army uh, to the Korean People's Army. And you, you do have Chinese evidence on that, um, on that specific issue. But when it comes to the, you know, Mao's meetings with Kim Il-sung, um, they're just, there's not public Chinese evidence on those. That's interesting. So how has the Chinese-North Korean relationship developed since the war, and what role does the war have in the Chinese national memory today? Yeah, it's definitely fair to say that the war rapidly accelerated, uh, you know, the relationship between China and North Korea. 
And it also, um, you know, up, you know, the Soviet Union had occupied North Korea after World War II, um, up through the founding of, of the North Korean state in 1948. And it's, it's fair to say that the Soviet Union prior to the Korean War was North Korea's most important ally. But the Korean War does change that. And it really sort of puts China on an even footing um, with the Soviet Union vis-a-vis North Korea. So it really does shift North Korea's uh, overall, you know, diplomatic relate foreign relations. In terms of, you know, how this relationship is viewed uh, or how the war is viewed today, on the one hand, I think if, if you look at, for many years, sort of China, um, the level of discourse about the Korean War was pretty limited. And it basically subscribed to the same view that North Korea had, which was in fact that North Korea didn't start the war, that this was a war started by the United States, uh, and that North Korea, you know, was defending itself. Um, that's changed a lot um, from the 1980s uh, to today. Most uh, Chinese historians recognize the sort of the complexity of the war and that it was, in fact, a, you know, a North Korean initiative that took place with the blessing of Stalin as well as Mao. Um, I think it's sort of the, the, and how it affects China's relations with North Korea today, it, you can sort of look at it two ways. Um, one is that, um, one is that, well, sorry to back up in terms of sort of popular memory, uh, the war is also for China, the Korean war is also very important because this is an example of China fighting against the United States and maybe not emerging victorious, but uh, they did they did effectively come out with a draw. So they, they didn't lose. Um, and if you put that, if you think about that in perspective, when China intervened in the Korean War, it had been a state for less than one year or about one year. Um, it was a poor country. It had just fought its own civil war for, you know, uh, four or five years. And then the fact that they're sending troops into a foreign country to fight the United States, which at that time, you know, the most powerful country in the world. I mean, that, that, I think that's a powerful thing um, for, for Chinese audiences. Um, but then there is the sort of the flip side, which is hundreds of thousands of Chinese people died fighting in this war or were, were seriously injured. Um, that means it affected even, you know, millions of family members in China. Uh, so there's sort of a, I mean, it was, it was a bloody, messy conflict for China. Um, it also prevented China from doing a lot of things that it wanted to do, one of which was to, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, invade, liberate, uh, you know, take over Taiwan, which to this day, uh, the People's Republic of China has never been able to do. And a big reason for that is because the Korean War got, got in the way. Um, so that's sort of one of the, the negative legacies, or those are some of the negative legacies that, that China um, has from this war. And, you know, in terms of sort of thinking about the place of the war in, in the relationship between China and North Korea today, I mean, on the one hand, this is, it's something that's often raised um, in sort of these official commemorations or official dialogues between the two countries that uh, you know, they, they, these, they were sort of bonded in blood as a result of this conflict. 
Uh, and, you know, they often will pay respect to the dead from both sides, uh, you know, dead soldiers from both sides. Um, so it sort of is a, still is an important unifying device. But it, I think it also does sort of feed into the debates today about, you know, should China continue to support North Korea or should China continue or should China uh, effectively abandon North Korea? Um, you know, what does China gain from effectively propping up the DPRK today? And I do think, I'm not saying it's the foremost calculation on the part of the Chinese government, but I do think it, it does come up. If China were to say, we're giving up on North Korea, we will no longer support them. Um, I mean, then this goes back to the, the sort of the cost that China uh, bared as a result of the Korean War, which was, you know, nearly a million soldiers dead uh, and an unresolved, from mainland China's perspective, an unresolved civil war of its own uh, with regard to Taiwan. So moving back to the documents, what, what is research on the war like in China? Is most of the work being done by Chinese scholars using Chinese sources? So I think just as in the United States, uh, in the early 1990s, when the, the Soviet archives opened up and a lot of the documents that came out at that time really uh, transformed how scholars in the United States understood the Korean War, I think the same is very true uh, with scholars in China. So if, if you read the, like, the footnotes of any serious book written in Chinese about the Korean War, most of the sources they're citing are actually Soviet documents. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's true here in the United States and that, that's also true in China. Um, I think the, the sort of the, where Chinese can fill in the gaps is, or at least they previously could, it's, it's now that we're 70 years from the Korean War, this is more challenging. Um, they could fill in the gaps through interviews uh, with Chinese officials who had been involved uh, in sort of the de deliberations or involved in the Korean War. Uh, and then there's a few Chinese scholars who do have privileged access to the Communist Party Central Archives uh, in Beijing, and they have gained some important insights um, from those, those archives. But that's, that's something, you know, like I said, you have to be sort of a privileged, reliable uh, historian who has some affiliation with the Communist Party to get those those documents, and I don't even know if that's true today. That that may have been true in the 1990s and early 2000s, but things in China have changed so dramatically. Uh, I don't know that you know who or if anyone is able to access those types of documents. But there have been um, some interesting revelations from from Chinese archives on uh, those types of Chinese archives. Uh, that, that have been highlighted in, among other places, the Cold War International History Project Bulletin. Uh, for example, there was uh, sort of a, a key document that it was believed to be a key document that a Chinese scholar had discovered in the Chinese archives written from Mao to Stalin right uh, before, right as China was deliberate, deliberating whether it should send troops to North Korea uh, and enter the war. Um, that sort of painted Mao's thinking in one light, and people believe that this really changed what we knew about Mao's, you know, strategic decision making. But then, actually, if you went to the Soviet archives and looked for the copy of this telegram, it it wasn't there. And in fact, you found something that was quite different. Uh, 
because what scholars in China had found was, we, we believe, sort of a draft telegram that was never actually sent to Stalin. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, th that's another thing. This having sort of access to both sides, uh, you know, the archives from China, from the so former Soviet Union, uh, can be very important because it helps you see, you know, what was such an urgent thing uh, from the Chinese perspective or from the Soviet side that they wanted to share this with their allies uh, in, you know, in Beijing or Moscow. Um, but overall, we don't have that level of sort of uh, access on both sides. You know, it's, it's much more weighted to the Russian documents than it is the Chinese, at least with regards to the question of the origins of the Korean War. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.